Okay, so this is Seth Itzcan with Soil for Climate. I'm live now with the great Gabe Brown of Brown's Ranch in North Dakota, and it's a real honor, really, uh, I don't want to sound sappy, but really is an honor for me to be here. And, um, you know, as, as everyone knows, I'm an armchair activist, right? I just got the laptop, but this is the producer practitioner right here, really going out there and moving the animals every day. And, and, and the chickens and the pigs and the cows and, and, and doing everything locally. And uh, th that's really the, the, the hero. The heroes are, are the producers. And at Soil for Climate, we do everything we can with, in, the, in the policy space and in the legislative space and in, you know, in making videos and just trying to get the word out. Um, and the science, of course, you know, trying to get the land monitored. But it, it's really the producers like Gabe, who are just on the ground making it happen, and got you know, thank God for them and, and all that. Um, okay, so um, just wanted to start off real quick with some fun um, uh, gifts. Uh, of course, um, you get a soil for climate all hat. Right. <laughs> every, all right, I like that. Every we'll uh, that right every away. participant now is okay. You don't have to wear it throughout this whole event, but every participant, of course, gets a soil for climate hat, and then. Um, a sort of a, a little little humor here, a nice red hat that says, make soil healthy again. I like that. Okay, so, I like that. so there you go. So we're, we're, we're all, for we're, we're all politically safe with each other now. <laughs> okay, so make soil healthy again. All right, so, um, so um, you know, you can, uh, there are some great, great questions which came in online. You know, people have very, some, some specific questions about your practice, um, you know, what you're doing here the sort of the, the climate question as well. Um, I just want to pose questions to you in just sort of a general sense, and then we can get into some specifics. But uh, um, first tell us just a little bit about the history, you know, how you got started in, in this, and then what are you seeing that you're inspired by that's hopeful, but, but what are you kind of concerned by as well? And then how could we be helpful? How could a group like Soul for Climate or the general public be helpful or, or, or how can we help you do your job better and other practitioners like you? So take it okay. away. Okay, so, so briefly, uh, I was born and raised in town. I'm a first generation farmer rancher. Uh, I had the good fortune of marrying a young gal whose parents farmed and ranched and, and uh, she'd appreciate me calling her young now. By the way, so. feel free to, to talk. To, you're literally so, talking to people out there. Yeah, the so, uh, we farmed with my in-laws for a period of about eight years. And then in 1991, we purchased the farm from them. And in 1994, I started no-tilling. And the reason I did that is because it simply made sense. It didn't make sense to me why we were tilling the soil, especially in our semi-arid environment. And then uh, when we went through a period of four years, three of hail and one of drought, where we lost four crops in a row, and I tell people the best thing that could have happened to us, even though it was extremely difficult to live through, it taught me the principles of a healthy soil ecosystem, you know, the principles of, of limiting disturbance and armor on the soil and diversity and living root as long as possible throughout the year and animal integration. And then we've actually added a sixth principle here lately called context. We have to farm and ranch in our context. And I think oftentimes that isn't taken into account. And so now what it's evolved into is I spend the vast majority of, of 
my days trying to educate others. And by others, I mean farmers, ranchers, businesses, consumers, anyone who will listen, the need for us to change our stewardship in a way that focuses on regeneration. It focuses on the resource and what we need to do for that resource. Now, we've noticed a, a real change the past, especially three or four years. You know, regenerative agriculture, whatever you wanna call it, doesn't matter so much to me. All that matters is we're, we're really focusing on doing what's right for the ecosystem. And that snowball is starting to roll downhill. Uh, we're seeing, you know, big businesses now contact us regularly, wanting to know how can they move down this regenerative path? How can their, their producers, suppliers move down this path? Uh, the concerning thing is always uh, government. Government tends to stand in the way. And I, I get often asked, what's holding this back? Uh, what's, why isn't everybody doing this if it's so good? And I say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most antagonistic thing to regenerative agriculture is the federal farm program. Uh, through revenue insurance, farmers and ranchers, due to uh, low commodity prices and, and being squeezed by tighter and tighter margins, they cannot get operating loans without the federal uh, farm program payments being involved in that. And that leads them further down a path of degradation, unfortunately. So that's always concerning to me. Uh, okay, so, so that's a concern. So, so how do you believe um, an organization like Solar for Climate or the general public can be of service to you to helping yeah. to ameliorate that problem? So I think what's gonna drive the most change is for consumers to vote with their buying dollar. Consumers really need to realize that they can make a significant difference by spending their food dollar in such a way that they dictate how uh, these stewardship practices are, are being applied to the landscape. So if they go and source their food from farmers and ranchers who are using these, this type of a model, it'll drive direct change on the landscape. Um, so w when, when you market your product, <clears throat> what sort of buzzwords or keywords do you want people to tune into? Yeah, the, the one thing uh, uh, that we really focus on is that we have an open door policy on our ranch. Anyone can come at any time and look at anything they want. And that builds trust. So we talk to them about clean air, clean water, nutrient dense food, and how healthy the soil is and that we're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil. And that really resonates with a lot of people. Um, also, I, I wanna just quickly make a, a logistical question. People who are watching, please feel free to share this in appropriate places. Our own sort of technical logistics here aren't perfect. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where it is, but, but, but please do your part in, in helping to share it. So, so again, um, if you're just tuning, tuning in, I'm, I'm with uh, Regenerative uh, uh, Ranching Hero, and I know he objects to those type of accolades, but whatever. Um, he's earned it. Um, I've just toured the property. I can vouch for it myself. Um, Gabe Brown. And so we're talking about re regenerative grazing and, and farming and soil as a climate solution and, and, and even, even, even preserving the, the farming and ranching culture, frankly. Um, uh, talk now about soil organic matter and the changes that you've seen here. 
Well, when my wife and I purchased this farm from our parents in 1991, soil organic matter levels on the cropland were between 1.7 and 1.9%. Now, the latest uh, soil tests we did, and we're, we're doing extensive soil testing, documenting what we've been able to do to soil carbon levels, we're now between 5.3 and 7.9% organic matter levels on the majority of our our property. So we've significantly well over tripled soil organic matter levels. And this, this is seen as a benefit to me financially. You know, we have much greater water holding capacity in our soil. We have much better nutrient cycling. All that directly adds to our profitability. But at the same time, it provides those ecosystem services to society, clean air, clean water, and, and a, uh, a more carbon back in the soil. Um, so let's just repeat those key numbers again. It was, it was around 1.5 SOM when you took it over. Yeah, it was 1.7 to 1.9. And now today we're from 5.3 to 7.9. So almost we, eight. Yeah, yeah, we've approximately tripled organic matter layers. Okay, so folks, I just wanna make sure everyone got that. He's tripled his soil organic matter levels. Um, by changing the management and of course the management, just repeat again quickly what the key parts of the management are. Well, the key parts of the management are simply following nature's template. Uh, least amount of disturbance possible. And that, uh, by that I mean all disturbances, mechanical, chemical, physical disturbance. Uh, always having armor or skin on the soil surface, you know, no bare soil. We don't wanna see any bare soil and Seth can attest to the fact as toured my property, you just don't see bare soil here as compared to neighboring properties. And the third one is diversity, tremendous diversity of both plant species, animals, insects, uh, living roots in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. You know, uh, it's a very late spring here in the upper Midwest and many producers don't have crops growing and we were standing in some crops that were a foot plus tall already. And that goes, to the fact that we specifically focus on having that living plant at all times. And then animal integration is so key. We've removed animals from the landscape. We need to get them out of the feedlots and the CAFOs and back out onto the landscape where they belong. And then the sixth principle I like to talk about is context. Uh, farming and ranching today is out of context. We're trying to push our, so to speak, our environment to produce higher and higher yields and more and more pounds. And that's not conducive to a healthy functioning ecosystem. Um, talk a little bit about the animal integration here. Which animals do you have? Yeah. How many, how do you integrate them? So our, our ranch is approximately 5,000 acres. And, and of that, there's, there's cropland and, and perennial quote unquote native rangeland, although it's really just a diverse community of plants, who are we to say it's native. And then we also have uh, land that was once cropland that we've seeded back to perennials. So we run about a thousand head of beef animals on this operation, everything from cow calf pairs to stocker cattle to grass finished beef. And then uh, we have a flock of ewes that we lamb out and, and we grass finish those lambs. We have a, uh, uh, some sows and we feral the sows out and run the, the, the finishing hogs on pasture. So we have pastured pork. We have 1400 laying hens on pasture. 
We do some broilers, we have bees, uh, not to mention a myriad of wildlife. And, and also, I, I just want to say, just even on the, on the drive over here, you just pass miles and miles of basically bare ground. <laughs> you know, what was a wheat or a cornfield, it's not, nothing is happening yet. And then you get to Gabe's property and boom, grass everywhere. There's no dirt anywhere. And, and I've seen this, ex I've had this experience before with other holistic um, uh, ranchers that I, I've visited in Canada last year when we went to the Future of Protein event uh, out in, in Ottawa. It's, uh, it's um, uh, canola, the Rapsi. That's mm -hmm. like the Rapsi country for some reason. It's mile after mile of just mm -hmm plowed, bare ground, nothing. And then we show up at the holistic rancher and boom, beautiful tall grass everywhere, cows. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, it's a, been a pleasure for me to experience this myself. Um, so let's go look at some of the questions. Hi from New York, hi Lorraine. Um, okay, uh, Sharon Caswell, I saw that Zach Bush spent a week with Gabe. I have heard previously Zach passing in some of the bad stats about meat producing and eating really hope you change his perspective on that i'm a big <laughs> fan of all three uh, anything you want to add well to that? that's a that's a work in progress you know it's education on both sides uh zach is certainly educating us as to the ramifications of of some of the uh herbicides and pesticides that are being used in agriculture and it's it's our hope that we're educating him that the difference lies in the type of fat of proteins that you consume. And certainly the pastured proteins have a true benefit to our ecosystems. And uh, we actually need more animals out on the landscape, not less. So we are working with Dr. Bush on that. And, and also, I just want to say that, that Soil for Climate is, as an organization is, is trying to work in, in, in the science policy space. Quite frankly, Gabe doesn't have time you know, to be dealing with this, he, you know, he's literally, he's moving the cows, literally. I saw him do it today. But but we do have a community in the soil for climate space. We were working on policy and science specifically to make the case, uh, not emotionally, you know, scientifically, this is better. And, and when you and when you look at the soil, I mean, when you, it's just so obvious is how much better it is. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, please ask, please post your questions here. I think there were some questions here too. Unfortunately, they're in a couple of different places. A lot of them are there. Can you maybe grab one there that you yeah. see? Yeah. So Ward asks, uh, can you grass finish cattle or lamb on native pasture? Absolutely. It comes down to diversity. And obviously it's about context. Where are you located? We'll determine at what time of the year those uh, forages are at their peak for nutrient density in order to put on the true finish, quote unquote, that we want to see in a grass finished animal. But absolutely, we can do it on native uh, rangelands. Uh, yeah, and I just, again, I, I just toured the property and, and, and we saw the finishing, the finishing herd. That's what we just saw. That's right. So I actually just saw the finishing herd today. So obviously they are finishing on, on grass. Um, and, and so apparently, I apologize, this has been posted a couple of places and people are asking questions in a couple of places. But maybe if, if you could if you could keep your questions to this particular thread here, um, um, it'll be easy, e easier for us to read them. Okay, here, um, Connor Rose says, uh, what do you consider some of your most valuable, helpful data that you keep on your grazing operation, especially the beef sector? 
Yeah, so one of the key points that I think we need to take into account when using livestock, not just beef cattle, but livestock as a tool is the, the principle of disruption in that we do not want to graze the same paddock at the same time every year. And when we do graze that paddock, we do not want to graze it at the same stock density that we did in previous years. We want to vary the, the time of the grazing and the uh, stock density, in other words, pounds per acre that of animals, live weight that we have on those acres. So that's probably one of the key stats that we keep track of here. I'm sorry, can you just repeat it again, just in the, just a few words? What's yeah, the so, so the key stats is, when do you graze it and with how many animals? Okay. And we want to vary that. Okay. And then um, the, the, the with how many animals part um, raises the question of sort of pounds per acre. And I know uh, on your own webpage, on the Browns Ranch webpage, you were talking about a 700,000 pounds per acre. I was with Roger Savory um, the other day at, 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 the, uh, at, the, at the Tomcat Ranch. And, and he was talking about going to a million pounds per acre. Yeah. So share a little bit of your own observation. Well, and we've that. actually done that. We have varied stocking in rates from as low as 25,000 pounds live weight per acre to well over a million pounds live weight per acre. But that shows the importance we need to vary that. Do not go on the same acres with the same rate every year because uh, ecosystem function as a memory. And what we want to do is disrupt that. Just like an athlete trains, you know, for the Olympics, they don't train lifting the same weights all the time. They use a varying weightlifting regime. We want to do that with the landscape also. We want to vary the number of animals on that landscape. I, th I, I think the point of, of saying seven, 700,000 or a million is almost just it, it, it's almost just for the shock value in that so much land is so understocked. Yeah. Like, like, where would you say most land typically is? Well, the average uh, stock density in North America is less than 500 pounds per acre. Okay, all right. Yeah, so that'll all put right. that in perspective. Okay, right. So whether we're talking 700,000 or a million, you know, what'd you say the average was less than 500? 500. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. So we're talking orders of magnitude. And exactly. that's the thing, it's orders of magnitude. And personally, I, I can say when I give talks about this and people say, oh, but there's not enough land. It's like, wait, no, you're, no, you're missing the point. You know, and that gets- <laughs> There's to, plenty of land. Yeah, and that gets back to, oh, people say, well, we got to get rid of the cattle and the cattle are destroying the land. No, the cattle aren't destroying the land. The management of the cattle is destroying the land. If you look back from a historical context, many historians believe there were many more ruminants grazing North America pre-European settlement than there are today. So why wasn't methane a problem back then? Why wasn't the landscape, you know, degraded back then? It comes back to stewardship or management. Yeah, and um, uh, seeing as you did just raise the methane question, or, or you know, you, you, you used a word. Um, so all the data that's coming out now is showing that when land is managed properly with soils, um, it, it's a net meth methane uh, sink. Yeah. You know, there's no question about it. Um, and uh, so, so specifically, um, the paper, um, uh, uh, Howarth, um, Carl, perhaps even in the comment area, you can you can um, put that citation in this thread here, and then and then the paper with Paige Stanley and Roundtree 
which came out last year, also specifically looks at the methane question. So it's, it's basically a comparison of a healthy landscape versus a, a, a dysfunctional landscape. Mm -hmm. And a healthy landscape that's made healthy with, with ruminants will, you know, will be a methane sink. And it also will create much more trans, transpiration of the, uh, uh, of the water from the leaves. And methane is naturally um, uh, metabolized in, in, the, um, in the upper atmosphere uh, uh, anyway, in the presence of water uh, moisture. So it, it, it neutralizes it in multiple ways. Um, I think there were some other questions posted here. Is it the same thread? I think so. Are these the same sets of questions? Yeah. yeah. Okay, friends, um, uh, feel free to um, type in some more questions. Okay, here's one that just came in um, from Richard Jeffries. I, ha I have a grain farmer friend on 600 acres here in Maryland. He makes excellent specialty feed blends, is non-GMO, non-till, and tests his harvested grains. I try to keep them short, friends. Uh, to be free of glyphosate, he has beautiful fields of crimson clover in the spring. However, he still uses Roundup to terminate his cover crops. I'd like to suggest other methods to him. He is open-minded. Please ask Gabe, how do other grain farmers terminate their cover crops without using herbicide? Yeah. There you go. Sure. So, so one of the main ways is with a crop roller and you wait until that cover crop is in what we call anthesis in other words starting to pollinate and that it's very susceptible to where where rolling will terminate it you roll it with a machine that's specifically designed to roll cover crops it's got a chevron type roll and it crimps the stem and kills it and in maryland that would be very easy to do i know many people out there who are using that successfully Okay, Richard, I hope that was helpful for you. Um, Natalie asked a question. Um, were you hit by the bug blizzard? Big blizzard. Oh, big. <laughs> it, it came out bug. All right, were yeah. you hit by the big blizzard? How deep was your snow this year? And how well did your animals do in the snow? Yeah, yeah. So, so the only ones of the species of our animals that are indoors during the winter are the laying hens. We put the laying hens inside a hoop house during the winter. Otherwise, our sheep and cattle and the hogs, they're all outside, um, and they do just fine. Uh, this winter, uh, we did have quite a bit of snow. We ended up with about 85 inches of snow for the winter, and they, they're acclimated to it, and they just do just fine. And I always tell people, if you really think that your cattle should be indoors during the winter, open the, open the gate and see where they'd rather be. They, they'll go outdoors every chance they can. And, and they're acclimated to it and they did just fine. Um, and also, by the way, I, I wanted to, to say just from my own observations today, um, so they do the, 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 the hay, the, the bale feeding in the winter. Just say a little bit about that. Yeah, so we use a method called bale grazing. And when the snow is, is so deep, like once we get to 30 inches plus of snow on the level, um, that becomes very, very difficult to cattle to, and sheep to forage through it. So then what we've done is we set bales out in the paddocks and we do that ahead of time in the fall. And then when we need to, we turn our livestock into those bales and they're allowed to consume. So they're still out on the landscape. You know, they're not in confinement, but we are supplementing them with forage at that time. And, and talk a little bit about where the forage comes from and then yeah. the net result that it yeah. has even years later. Yeah. So... 
all of the feed we produce for all of our livestock is uh, grown on our own farm. And we're very proud of that. We're, we're fairly self-contained here and that the forages in, the, in terms of the hay or the grains that we feed our poultry and hogs, we grow ourselves on our operation. Well, then what happens, we, we, will, we will typically feed the hay in the paddock where it's baled, turn the cattle on there, they'll, they'll eat on those bales during the worst part of winter, the most severe part of winter. Then the next spring, that's where our hogs come through, our pastured hogs. They come and they rut through all that, that hay that the cattle didn't eat and spread it around. And then in turn, what that causes is a, a very fast decomposition. And we're getting that carbon feed to the soil and Seth, you saw today how much more productive it is where we had that extra carbon. Um, yeah, so I, I just wanna say, I, I've had a couple of aha moments myself today visiting the farm before we sat down for the interview. And um, the whole sort of, um, you know, hay feeding in, in the winter, I, I, I don't know, some people may, may look down on that or something, but, but everywhere where the pile of hay was, he could show me years later like he would say, okay, this is where it was in 2018. This is where it was in 2017. And you can see the grass, these big healthy mounds of good green grass, exactly, exactly where the bale was. And, and then, but everything is being rotated all yeah. the time. So yep. this year the bales are here, the next year they're somewhere else. And then the pigs and the chickens follow it. So it, it was a learning moment for me as well to see that it mm -hmm. totally works. All we're doing is enhancing the carbon cycle. Um, uh, here's a question from Kim. Uh, how do herbicides impact soil microbiology and soil carbon sequestration? So, so boy, that's a, that's a loaded question, Kim, and one that is not real easily answered. First, we have to realize that, that herbicides uh, contain carbon. So because they contain carbon, they're actually a food source for some biology. Now, the difficulty and, and the problem arises when A, those herbicides that are water soluble, they end up in the watershed. Another class of herbicides is chelators. In a, and by chelating, it attaches to heavy metals. So then it ties up like your iron, your manganese, your zinc, it ties up those nutrients, so to speak, so that they're not available to the plants. So no doubt about it, we're much better off if we can move away from the use of herbicides. And just remind again, uh, for people who just uh, joined recently, how long has it been since you used yeah. herbicides? Yeah, so we have not used any synthetic fertility since 2007. We have not used any fungicides or pesticides since before the turn of the century. Now I will occasionally use a herbicide. I don't use glyphosate, but the reason I do that is I just refuse to till. And I'm not going to use tillage because uh, tillage is just so destructive to the soil ecosystem. Now, in saying that, we have many of our cropland fields have been, this is six years of, of no herbicide on them. So we're able to go a long time between any herbicide passes. And where we do use them is just if we have an occasional area where we're not able to bring livestock around, onto them in a timely manner, then we may use a herbicide there. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Livestock are the ultimate herbicide. That's right? exactly right. We'll yeah. use our livestock as that tool. Now, it seems like another question just came in there. This one right here. 
Oh, that was the yeah, herbicide. That was the herbicide. Uh, okay, okay. So we're both seeing the same feed. Yeah. Okay, good. Questions are starting to come in. All right, thank you. So that's what that's what we want here. Um, do you have dung beetles? That and do you have? Looks like she didn't finish it. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, a ward. So sorry. the question Ward asked about dung beetles in two thousand and nine. We discontinued all use of all uh, wormers, porons, insecticides on any of our livestock. It really took two years before we had a noticeable population of dung beetles. And now my son keeps close track and we actually have 17 different species of dung beetles on our operation, plus a myriad of other uh, uh, insects that, that uh, uh, use manure pats as a, as a food source. 17 species 17 of species. So you had some biologists from the local university. No, actually, that, was, that, that, was, my, that was my son who I, I tell people that's why he's 31 and not married is because he spends <laughs> all his time digging through manure pads <laughs> looking you at. You realize this is live on the internet, right? right? It's too late he, to he's retract used. that. Yeah. All right, well, God, God bless him then. Yeah. God, God bless the, the man who counts dung beetle species, okay? Yeah. He's got a vote with his for climate. Um, have your water tables risen? Oh, good question from Natalie. Thank you. Oh, Natalie, that's a great question. And, and the answer is yes, definitely so. Uh, we have to go, we don't have much surface water on our ranch. So in other words, no live streams or, and very few ponds. But what we do have, uh, the water table we do have is about 200 to 250 feet below the soil surface. So we thought, but over time, we've noticed that there's areas on the ranch that are now uh, becoming seasonal type wetlands. And I think it's because we've actually healed the ecosystem, healed the, the water cycle to the point that they're returning to, to the function they had pre-European settlement. And now we've gone in and enhanced those places by uh, uh, planting trees and species that are more adaptable to seasonal wetlands. I, I just want to repeat something I just heard you say. You're saying you're, you're seeing what appears to be like an emergence of a wetland. Yes. And I'm assuming this would be sort of a, a lower pasture. Yep. yep. And I, I think that comes about as, take a look at what we've been able to do to our carbon or organic matter levels. They're much higher, thus water holding capacity is higher. We virtually, the, the team of scientists I had here two years ago measured we can infiltrate an inch of rain in nine seconds and the second inch in 16 seconds. So that means every drop of rainfall that falls on this ranch is going to infiltrate into the soil. Well, because of the porosity, the pore spaces uh, formed by those soil aggregates, that's going to move throughout the soil profile and then it's going to accumulate in these uh, lower areas. So that's a good thing. That makes us very, very resilient to these wide swings in precipitation. Um, what, what's the data that you've heard about how increasing soil carbon increases its ability to hold water? Yeah, so it's, so it's not linear, but for every 1% increase in soil organic matter, you can hold between 17,000 and 25,000 gallons more water per acre. So I went from less than 2% soil organic matter, in other words, less than 40,000 gallons per acre, to now we're near 7% or higher. So upwards of 125, 140,000 gallons of water we can now store per acre. And as I said, when you make your living from the land, that makes you very resilient 
to these wide swings in temperature and moisture. And if you would just give a quick shout out to the, the scientists or the organizations you're working with that are measuring soil carbon and those Yeah, so, so I'm working with Dr. John Norman and Abe Collins at Landstream and in conjunction with Dr. Jason Roundtree at Michigan State University and Shannon Gomes at Cedar Basin Consulting in Iowa. And we're doing some very intensive uh, uh, detailed analysis of the soil function and quality on our, our ranch. All right, so good shout out to those people. I know some of them also. And uh, there's a question from, uh, oh, all right. Okay, Carl, thank you. Um, but, but you know, from, from the point of view of quote unquote soil for climate, um, the carbon increases, and then of course the water increases are, are what is really sort of our, our bang for the buck, so, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. In addition, of course, to the obvious improvements in production. Right. You know, right. that's sort of like a given. Like, uh, yep. but, but, but in terms of like carbon and water, and those two, they just, it goes so hand in hand. And and when when people first hear that that statistic, there, you know, most people are shocked. I know I was. Twenty thousand gallons on average mm -hmm. increase yep. per acre, and that's that's just a six inches. That's right. just a, you know, right. it's actually the reality is is much more than that. Well, that's a conservative and, number. And that's one of the things Dr. John Norman has found. We're taking uh, soil probes four feet deep into the soil profile. And what he's found is we have aggregation now in some areas on our ranch, all four feet. Well, think of what that means. We're moving that carbon much deeper into the soil profile than they used to think possible. And if you have aggregation now in four feet, you're going to be moving water much deeper into the soil but profile Talk about also. The, the change of the A horizon. Yeah. Well. So one thing that was noted is that... Uh, um, uh, the A horizon typically in this environment, due to all the tillage that we've had, is four to five inches. Well, Dr. Norman has documented on our ranch, we now have A horizon 28 to 29 inches deep. So in other words, we're growing topsoil. Another very important thing he noted, he said, in some of the, the cores they pulled, soil cores they pulled on our ranch, he thinks we're approaching 70% soil porosity. In other words, that's the pore spaces in the soil. Well, think about what that means for water infiltration. It's just huge. Yet you look at what's occurring, especially this spring, all over many areas of the United States, look at the flooding we're having. Now, if everybody was able to infiltrate water and then move throughout the soil profile and store via those carbon levels, what would that do? To the, to the problems we're having with flooding. Right, and particularly like in Davenport, exactly. where, where the flooding was so terrible. And yeah, you know, that's where I, where I think this is gonna come down to in terms of dollars and cents. I actually think the insurance industry is gonna start to play a big role in this. Because now they're, you know, putting out these payments for homeowners insurance and crop insurance and, uh, and like the reinsurers, like Lloyd's of London. I mean, you talk about a, a, a place to push in the system, yeah. you know, the buckets yeah. are full of people will know, will know the concept of the trim tab. Where's the one spot to push? I, I actually think it's on the reinsurer industry. Yep. And we're actually, when I say we, my partners and I and understanding egg are being contacted by these large companies that are looking at things just like that. Hey, is there a way that we can uh, lower insurance rates to farmers and ranchers who are using these practices? Because they're much more resilient to 
these disasters. So you've actually have already oh, started yes. to have this conversation. Yes. Well, I, I let's do a high five on that. <laughs> no, no, I just want to say that's really good news. That's like, I. I knew as, as a concept that the insurance industry had to start to play a role in this, but the fact that they already are starting yep. to ask you about it, yep. that's good news. That means change. That's change. <laughs> when the insurance industry gets involved, that's change. Okay, good. Um, uh, Brian Angler says, do you put up hay or buy? Yeah. And, and so we put up our own hay. And the reason we do that is because then we're able to, feed it in the paddocks where we put it up. That way we're not removing the carbon. We're just prolonging the, you know, we're, we're locking in and storing the nutrients in that forage and then we're feeding it back on the land. So it's cycled through. Okay, and uh, it is good. People, are, a lot of questions are coming in now. So um, let's try to run through these. Um, Gustav asks, how many inches of soil have you built since you started regenerative practices? Okay, you sort of answered before, yeah. but, but go ahead. Let's answer yeah, and, and I'm not gonna say it's over our entire operation, but we've documented as high as, as over 20 inches. Um, I think that that is really the old myth that it takes 500 years to be a, build an inch of topsoil is being really uh, shown to be a myth by many of those using these practices. Uh, by the way, I also just want to say that um, if if you um, look at the thread, the comment thread that is created with this video, uh, my colleague, uh, Soil for Climate colleague, Carl Tiedemann, has posted some of the citations that we talked about before when uh, Robert Howarth of, of, of the Cornell Methane Project uh, talks about how the methane spikes are actually coming from fracking. Mm -hmm. They have absolutely nothing to do with uh, animal agriculture. And... Um, and uh, and another citation, the one of Roundtree and Stanley, 2018, um, uh, showing that the so soil carbon sequestration um, more than compensates for the mm -hmm. methane in any way, just mm -hmm. in itself. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so um, I don't see any other questions in this thread that we haven't gotten to yet. Um, people still feel free to ask some questions. We'll, uh, we'll be with Gabe for a few more minutes at any rate. I, I just have some, some questions of my own sure. right now. So, I mean, what, what are you hoping to see happen? I mean, I'm a, uh, I'm a, uh, in a climate, I, I got into this through climate, you know, and so here I am, you know, hanging out with ranchers in North Dakota. Right. <laughs> um, and, but we really are facing a serious crisis. I mean, the climate situation is bad. And, and what's, what's interesting is in the regenerative ag community, a lot of ranchers I know are, you know, conservative and they think climate is a liberal idea, whatever. It almost, you're making the point, look, it doesn't matter. I, I don't mm -hmm. care what you believe about climate. The mm -hmm. fact is your production will be better. Mm -hmm. Your bottom line will be better. Okay, I, I, I get it. But, but w what are you hoping can happen fairly quickly? Like mm -hmm. I'm not, not just talking about incremental change now. Mm -hmm. we, we really need to see exponential change. Mm -hmm. So what are, you, what are you hoping can happen in that regard? Yeah, great questions. And exponential change can happen very rapidly if we just grow things. You know, you said it said as you drove out here, bare soil, bare soil, or bare soil until you got to my ranch. And it's not because I have everything in perennials. It's because I plant things all the time. We plant fall biennials that start growing in the fall. They'll overwinter and they'll start growing right away in the spring. So we're we're cycling more carbon. And I really think, and I tell people this, that 
I don't care what angle you come from, whether it's, it's the climate issue, whether it's too many nutrients in our watersheds, whether it be the, the, the Great Lakes, you know, the, the Mississippi Delta, the estuaries, no matter where you talk about the overload of nutrients, whether you talk about farm and ranch profitability, which there is a real crisis in agriculture right now. Uh, the highest suicide rates of any profession right now are found in farming and ranching. That's, how, that's what kind of a crisis we're in. Well, we can substantially increase profitability by going down this model. Or let's look at the human health aspect. You know, the United States spends more on healthcare than any other country in the world, yet we rank at the top or near the top in ADD, ADHD, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, autoimmune diseases, cancer, osteoporosis, and the list goes on. So whatever angle you want to come at it from, regenerative ag is the answer. Because we have the ability through our stewardship and management of the landscape to address all of those issues. So any change we make is going to be positive. But right now, let's start by growing things. Just by growing things, we'll start healing all of these cycles and we'll start making a positive impact on all of those issues. Well, Gabe, thank you so much. I mean, I just I want to shake your hand. My cause, pleasure. Because that you really are a hero in my eyes anyway. And um, I, I just love the way you just you just worded it to start growing things. So we're trying to grow a movement and and we really do need to have exponential change. You know, it can't just be an acre here, an acre there. I mean, I mean, there's literally billions of acres of land that are degrading and 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 we need to reverse that and bring it back. And we need to make the connection with climate and health and the whole insurance and floods and droughts and all that. It's all connected to land. And um, as some of you people who follow Solar for Climate know, we are getting more and more involved about the legislative side now. There's a Google group. It's just called Healthy Soils Legislation, healthy-soils-legislation. Um, 12 states now, I think, have some sort of healthy soils bill, either already um, on the docket or they're discussing it. Um, uh, one just passed in New Mexico. Oh, let me say this about the whole New Mexico thing. The Healthy Soils Legislation that just passed in New Mexico it was almost it was almost unanimous um, mm -hmm. on the house it was something like 46 to 6 and then on the senate it was like 34 to 0 literally so between the house and the senate it was like it was like 80 to 6 <laughs> when when do you ever see yeah. that type of one-sidedness you know, yeah. and, and, and you know, New Mexico is a fairly conservative state. I mean, I mean, yeah, Santa Fe, you've got your little liberal enclave. But so you've got a lot of conservative people voting yep. for healthy soils yep. legislation. Yep. So healthy soils really can be the rallying point that brings, you know, our, our political system together. And, you know, you don't even have to talk about climate. I know it's a climate solution. You know it's a climate solution. But if it's not politically advantageous to talk about climate, fine, you don't have to. Right. Okay, um, uh, let me just see. We'll wrap up soon. Um, there are some more questions. Are you okay going a little Fine. longer? Because we've got some more questions are coming in now. Um, Kim says, uh, we have very fine acidic sandy soil that is easily compacted. Is the approach to building organic material the same or do you have any additional tips for more sandy soil? Yeah, yeah. So what you're going to want to start with, Kim, there is your fibrous root systems. You need to start with grasses, lots of grasses. Uh, approximately two thirds of your organic matter increase will come from the roots. So you need to plant species that will have the greatest root biomass. 
and that would be the grass species. Any particular type or just that, that's going to depend on where she's located okay and i don't know that so okay okay so basically a grass species but then obviously that means grazing it it it, it certainly does grazing would be very very powerful say say something if you would about grazing and cropping inter the inter uh, well and, on the same land over different years you know i often get asked is there a real difference you know if i don't have livestock can I do this? And the answer is yes, you can significantly advance your soils without livestock. However, they will never be as healthy as where livestock are uh, used on them and, and used as a tool on them. The reason being is, is you have to understand what happens when a plant is bitten by an animal. That plant then starts sloughing off roots and root exudates in order to attract biology to regrow. So it's a symbiotic relationship that occurred over time, whether we're talking the Serengeti in Africa or the Great Plains in the United States. These deep, rich soils were formed from animals on the landscape. One of the worst things we can do to our ecosystem is remove animals from the landscape. So there's, there's, there's a nice take home quote right there. Um, now, actually, you, you, did, you did just mention uh, Africa. As people know, I've spent a lot mm -hmm. of time with Alan Savory at the Africa Center for Holistic Management. Could you just talk a little bit about, you know, Alan and, and, and his teachings and yeah. what, what role it's played in your own view? Well, things? Alan's been a big influence on our operation and the fact that, that I first started reading uh, about holistic management back uh, in the late 1980s. And then as I went down uh, through what I call my my lean years, if you can imagine me lean, it's, it's, there's, a, yeah, there's a pun. But uh, uh, I started uh, using his concept, the, the concept of holistic plan grazing on our, our ranch and moving the livestock and we saw immediate results. And I've just taken that uh, a bit further, integrating it onto the cropland too. And we use the same principles on our cropland. We're moving the animals across the landscape. And because of the tools that Alan gave me, we've seen significant positive changes. Just really briefly, when you say the tools, what do you mean by that? The, the tools, I mean using livestock as a tool. And, and all of these things, whether we're talking livestock, whether we're talking a no-till drill, when we're, whether we're talking a cover crop, these are all tools that help us positively impact the ecosystem. What about a holistic context as a tool itself? Well, and, and absolutely, you know, one of the things Alan taught me early on is that you have to have a goal and you have to have a holistic goal. And, and it has to be a goal not only for, for the resource itself, but also for the family dynamics that are involved. So, so do you do that on your ranch? You have a holistic concept? We, we do. We excellent, do. excellent. Um, um, and you said that Alan has visited here? Yes, Alan was here last summer and spent a day with us on the ranch. And it, it was a very, very... Uh, nice visit. He was very cordial. We had a wonderful time and and uh, he talked to me and challenged me even further. And, and that's a good thing. I Alan, love Alan, Alan does that, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Um, uh, question here from Richard Jeffries. At a policy level, what are the best ways to move more acreage into regenerative practices? <laughs> At a policy well, level. Well, and, and this is going to be the most difficult to do, Richard, is we absolutely have to change the current uh, insurance program 
that is revenue insurance based because think of what it's doing. It's driving us down a path of very few crops and those crops are all based on yield and production. And that's just the wrong production model to be in. So often farmers and ranchers, they focus on yield and pounds and they don't focus on the negative. In other words, the, the, the cascading events that happen to the ecosystem as a result of those management practices. And we're actually getting in a vortex that's taking us deeper and deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole that we're gonna have a difficult time getting out of. The unfortunate thing is look at all of the quote unquote players that are involved, whether it be the chemical industry, the fertilizer industry, the implement dealers, the grain growers, all of them are so bought in to this current production model that it's gonna be extremely difficult for us to change that policy. And, and also, I just wanna remind people that um, uh, Soil for Climate is involved in policy. Um, <clears throat> if you, if you wanna be involved in policy at the state level, um, please join the Google group called Healthy Soils Legislation, just healthy-soils-legislation. And uh, Stephen Kelly, um, who may be watching right now, is active, very active uh, in, in that group. And, and, and it's helped influence legislation now moving through various state houses and senates. So, so um, <clears throat> you know, the insurance part hasn't sort of formally been involved, um, but that's, that's gonna be a key, that's gonna be a key part. So let, let's continue to have the, uh, the policy discussion, you know, here in the Soil for Climate Facebook group or also in that Google group, which is specifically, this is sort of an action-oriented group. So, join that group specifically to get involved with your state. Um, okay, uh, let's take a couple more questions. Uh, Brian says, what do you think of key line plowing as a way to build topsoil faster? I've heard other regenerative practitioners advocate for it. Sure, and I, I think, uh, Brian, that's all about context, uh, where you're at. I have seen environments where it has made a significant positive impact and it's a tool to be used. I'm certainly not going to uh, say don't use it if it has a positive benefit. Uh, those that I've seen tried in my environment, uh, we, we have not noticed any significant improvement, but in others we have. So by all means, if it'll advance ecosystem function, that's a good thing. Okay, um, is Keyline, is, is that sort of more for more steep areas? Well, it can be. It's about moving water uh, throughout the landscape and, and they do it, you know, it's, it's not a lot of disturbance to it. The plowing is kind of a misnomer. They're going in with it with more or less a deep ripping. It's called the Keyline plow, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's kind of a misnomer there. So it's about moving water across the landscape, mm -hmm. often where there is some type of rolling terrain. So, so basically what you're saying is, you know, try it, yep. see if it works for you. Right? That's right. Okay. Um, and um, uh, let's see, just so let's just go through a few more here. Um, Terry writes, need to educate the next generation that aren't raising farming, ranching. We need new blood in regenerative agriculture. How do we incentivize young people to get into farming? Yeah, and so that's a great question, Terry, and I could not agree more. So one of the things we've done on our ranch for the past 20 plus years is we've had an internship program where we 
We uh, select a couple of inter young people every year to uh, come and intern on our ranch. Uh, we educate them and teach them as to these practices and then uh, hopefully guide them and help them uh, get into agriculture on their own, get into production agriculture. And another thing I'm actively involved in, we're actually uh, matching up uh, farmers who do not have uh, an heir, so to speak, to take over their farmer ranch with young people who are interested in doing so. And that's very rewarding as well. Yeah, and, and I also want to add to that, um, you know, I have personally been to the uh, Africa Center for Holistic Management in Zimbabwe like six times now since 2011. And, um, <clears throat> you know, just, just go to these places. Like literally just go visit the regenerative uh, uh, producers. And, um, but, but, but I have started thinking about how, I, how even I could help set up programs like recruiting young people for a week, two weeks at a time you know, be hands-on uh, during the day, working with the herders and the farmers and then at night, you know, taking some classes and even classes on policy, like, like sort of almost like a boot camp, if you will, mm -hmm. of, of learning the actual practice, but then learning the science and the policy and all that. We really do need a whole new generation. Yeah, go for yeah, it. One of the things that my business partners and I are doing with our nonprofit Soil Health Academy is uh, we have philanthropists who have provided money for scholarships in order to, to help the next generation. And we'll provide scholarships so they can attend our, our Soil Health Academy trainings. Okay, so, so there you go. And just speaking from you know, personal experience, I mean, I was raised in the cities, high-tech background, computer programming and, and all that stuff. And uh, I, I was what you might call a traditional climate activist, um, which was you know, during the days of solar power and wind power and electric cars when that was sort of new, even, even as far back as the 1970s. Um, and it's all still essential. We have to stop putting CO2 into the air through combustion. Absolutely. But we also have to start drawing it out. And, um, you know, like a lot of city people, I thought farming, you know, whatever, oh, that's something people in the Midwest do, or it's, you know, that's the old way. The future is technology. And now I learned this is the most exciting game in town. You know, it's just learning about the biology and the photosynthesis and what's going on underground and the animals and the cycling and then the water and the, the, the communities and the profitability. It's like, oh my God, this is endlessly fascinating. And, and there's also, there's a, there's a whole evolutionary perspective here. I mean, this is literally why we're humans. Like we're humans because um, we evolved out of the forest onto the plains because there was protein there. Like mm -hmm. that's why we ended up on the plains. You know, it wasn't because we were going to eat the grasses. No, we were going to eat the animals that were eating the grass. And then that extra protein and fat gave us the frontal lobe. That's why we have higher order thinking. And what do you think we were thinking about? Where's the beef? <laughs> like those were literally the earliest thoughts, you know, and how are we going to organize around it? Like that's why we're human. And and now that fact gets to be incorporated into a larger fact, which is also now we're a global, we're a global civilization, and we need to work with the evolutionary dynamics that made us human in the first place to be stewards of our earth. Yeah, you know, you can't well just said. you can't word it any you know more basically than that. Now, look, I, I think this is a good time to to start to wrap up. I apologize if we didn't get to your questions. I do see there are more coming in, but. Um, but 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 
but you know that this is one of the beauties of Facebook actually is it saves everything. I have no idea how it does it. But anyway, um, this is will be saved. You can continue to add comments. If, if Gabe has time, he can continue to chat. You know, to, I, to, I to would text be happy to. I can answer Tim's question about what what uh, uh, species to use in an orchard and in clay soils, and that would be grass species. Use grass species that are acclimated to your environment. We do that under our fruit orchards. We have a wide diverse array of different grasses, forbs and legumes and, and that equates into, into uh, nutrient cycling, which equates into higher nutrient density in your fruits. Okay, Tim, so look at that. You get the last uh, question answered in real time um, from Gabe, but maybe you know he can continue to answer questions via text later. Uh, let me just put a, a plug in for Soil for Climate. So, we're a nonprofit educational advocacy organization um, advocating for soils, a climate solution. Well, what does that really mean? It means everything. I mean, we're working with the practitioners like Gabe, but also, you know, the scientists to come and measure it and the whole policy part, like we were just talking about before. And, um, and then just public, public awareness that, that, so, that there even is such a thing as drawdown and sequestering carbon and the soils that quote unquote a sink. Uh, um, so, if you want to be more involved uh, with us, uh, we're trying to set up chapters uh, in different localities as it makes sense to do so. You know, you know, write to me privately or or just post and say, oh, you know, I'm here. Maybe we could have a chapter here. Um, you know, just just to be helpful. You know, not to not to just have chapters for the sake of having them, but but to the extent that it makes sense to have a, a local version of it. You know, that, that let's let's do it that way. Um, any other sort of closing thoughts that you have? Not at the moment. Okay, not at the moment. Okay, well, so this is uh, uh, Seth and Gabe signing out from Brown's Ranch in, um, in Bismarck, North Dakota. It's been a real honor to be here, and thank you for the hospitality. Pleasure having you here, okay. Seth. Thank great, you for great. coming. Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.